Hello, and welcome to 10 Very Big Books, a Malazan read-through podcast. My name is Peter Bond, and uh, today on the show, we have finished book eight. So as always, AJ, India, and Josh have stepped out, and uh, I've invited a guest on the show to kind of have a spoiler-filled discussion uh, about Toll the Hounds in the context of the whole series. So there's going to be spoilers for those 10 books. Um, If you don't want to hear them, you shouldn't listen to this episode. So with that said, let's get on with it. Today on the show, we have AP Canavan. Uh, You may know him from his illustrious presence online, his many great videos about Malazan on his YouTube channel, The Critical Dragon. And we just recorded another podcast with him, and he has sat down graciously for another chat. How are you feeling today, AP? I am doing very well, Peter. Thank you for having me on. And I I do apologize to your listeners who thought that the previous one was going to be about Toll the Hounds when we discussed, I think, zero Toll the Hounds content. (laughs) Um, No, I mean, I think we we definitely wanted to, because we sat down with Mark one time and just talked about Carson and kind of some, I don't know, just some like real life experience stuff. So I think it was nice to be able to sit down and almost in a similar sense, talk about your experience and kind of what you do and, and kind of what you're about. I think that was welcomed, you know? Yeah. Mark, Mark's an interesting guy. Uh, I have had the pleasure of meeting him a few times and uh, he, he is such good crack. Uh, I, because of his experience of actually playing the games with uh, Steven Erickson and Ian C. Esselman, he, he has a, a completely different perspective, not only on some of the characters, but on mm-hmm. um, the world itself, because obviously what they gamed is not what ended up in the books. Like the books, while they are based on and have drawn elements from the the gaming, they are not the games. And they, they obviously narrativize things, they change things around. And so it, it was always fascinating getting a, a different perspective on it. Oh, it was it was great talking to him. And he, he's obviously, he's, he's a very fun guy to speak to. So it was a blast. I was glad. We were put in contact with them. And you actually touch on something because we just got off the call. I didn't know the Dragonlance books were so came from their narrativized in almost in the same setting of of off of role playing sessions. That was an interesting tidbit of, I guess, I don't know, fantasy lore, whatever you want to call it. Well, it, as, as far as I can remember, and it's been a while since I looked at it, I think Margaret, Margaret Weiss was the author and Tracy Hickman was the game designer. And oh. they were put together to create the new game setting of Kryn, where Dragonlance is set, because um, TSR were expanding the, the number of basically D&D properties. So you had Forgotten Realms is set in Farron, and then this was Dragonlance was going to be in Kryn. And they were playtesting the new ver- the rules that they were going to use and all that sort of stuff. And so by putting an author together with a game designer, you had someone who was very good at understanding the mechanics of how things were going to function, how you have, you, you can't generate like uh, overpowered cl- uh, characters, what rules are going to end up being problematic in play. But you had the the author there to help try and find things that would keep readers interested to, to design those narrative hooks and to build in interesting aspects of the world. So trying to meld together the idea of mechanics and storytelling, which is very much what we get with in the, the modern genre when you know people talk about hard magic systems. First of all, the term system is already implying a whole series of rules. But when we talk about hard magic systems, A, that is essentially coming from what was consolidated by D&D. 
But the narrative for a lot of those books that use them is actually centralized around the magic. Whereas in a lot of uh, fantasy novels that use softer magic, the magic is part of the world, not the center of the narrative. Um, and so it just it's different ways of playing and thinking about the aspects of creating narrative. Are you looking at it mechanically in terms of all of the different structures and I need peaks and troughs in terms of uh, enjoyment and pacing and tension and where where am I putting in the breathing space? You can look at narrative very, very mechanically and that's the sort of the structuralist approach that I very much enjoy. But you can also look at it more in terms of the reader experience and you're then focused on uh, the content, the texture of the world. What are the things that readers might find interesting? And that's where you get development of aspects of lore and character development. All of those things are almost like the, the more artistic side of it. So it was an interesting approach that they took for the development of the game. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to hear you say that, that and it's interesting to talk to you in our last chat um, to follow up about one other thing from that other conversation, then I swear we're going to talk about Toll the Hounds. It is, I think, something I've enjoyed about your YouTube channel, which we plugged a fair amount, and then, I don't know, some other people's as well, is we kind of, you kind of touched on this idea, you know, that genre fiction, fantasy, and other are, you know, bad. This is the trash of the, uh, this is not the good literature. And I, I actually mentioned this to... Ian Cameron also might as well. I've definitely been affected by this reputation as well and just felt like some urge to take this type of writing less seriously. So I've always found it very invigorating when people like you or Philip Chase or someone else is taking very seriously, I think, um, this genre, you know? Yeah, well, it, it's so nice of you to mention my nemesis, <laughs> the, the evil Dr. Philip Chase. Um, it is... It is one of, what was the truism? Is it something like 99% of everything is uh, excrement or uh, a synonym for that? Sure. With There was a perception with genre fiction because it was narrative event focused, what a lot of people commonly call like plot centric, that it wasn't exhibiting the best aspects of writing. And, you know, a lot of that was the Iowa Writers Workshop, the, the sort of uh, Hemingway school of writing uh, that was focused on different aspects and there was a fair amount of literary snobbery and within that within both the academic and professional spheres uh such as you know professional authors that literary fiction even though it is just another genre uh with its own rules and styles that it was in some way superior and any text that was in any way fantastical that was approved of in the canon they found a reason to exceptionalize it. So Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh, that's different. Milton's Paradise Lost. Oh, that's different. Uh, Dante's Divine Comedy. Oh, that's different. Animal Farm. Oh, that's different. 1984. Oh, that's different. Every single time there was a way of trying to exceptionalize what a, a text was that had clearly fantastical text, be it science fiction or fantasy, to make it appear not part of this ghetto of genre. And yet anyone who reads widely, anyone who even reads deeply in the genre knows that there are exceptional texts in every genre, be they romance, because we could talk about Regency romances and uh, Jane Austen. Sure. You know, do, do we write her, oh, she's just a romance author and all romances are trash. 
Of course not. That would be absolutely ridiculous. And yet there was always that public perception because fantasy and science fiction were so far removed from the real. How could they ever be relevant? And yet we know at the heart of these stories that what these stories show us, what these stories set off in us as a, a, a resonance with us is a deeper truth. People don't read The Lord of the Rings and go, oh, that was an exciting adventure with hobbits. Well, maybe some people do. But a lot of that, we draw parallels whether Tolkien intended them or not. He didn't intend it as a direct allegory, but he was certainly drawing on elements of his service in the war. Yeah. And we can see PTSD being explored in that. And you go, for someone who is trying to understand that, The Lord of the Rings is an excellent text. For someone who is suffering from it, The Lord of the Rings might be a way to help deal with it and understand it for themselves because it gives them that little bit of distance off something that may set off a response. And that that is one of the strengths of all forms of literature, regardless of their genre, their ability to speak to us personally and help us think of things, uh, encounter things. They can be cathartic. They can challenge our per, uh, perceived notions about something. They can challenge our views on a subject because we get very deeply involved in having a position on things. And when you set something in the real world, it is harder to distance yourself from those entrenched positions. And fantasy gives us the ability to step outside that, to think almost more objectively about what the issue is, rather than thinking of what you should think, or this is how I would react in real life, or how people think I should react in real life. That fantasy, science fiction, horror, these, these give us different experiences and, and different ways of conceptualizing, approaching, and understanding very core aspects of the human condition. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I would agree, um, obviously. Um, and, you know, I just think that's why I, I said I appreciate your work and I thank you. I feel like sometimes these literary, you know, the snobbery, you know, has created walls that can prevent me or other people from reaching into further into texts if they are genre texts. Um, and I agree that I think when you enter this realm of metaphor or fantasy, you obviously can broach subjects in a different type of way. You use the word objective. I almost feel like it's abstract in a sense. I think, I don't know, it's pro or con because I do think sometimes you lose out on the specifics of real life, which sometimes are really important to ideas. But I think on the pro that you're getting at, it's like you are able, by losing those, you are able to somehow maybe free yourself from biases or free yourself from some position that you have. So, um, yeah, the term abstract is absolutely perfect. Like taking instead of looking at the specific, looking at a generalized abstract, and and then playing around with it because getting getting a deeper sense of something and then going back to the specific. And it was something that Donaldson talked about in his essays on on epic fantasy about this returning with the knowledge from what you have read, and it helps us. Uh, reconceptualize what's around us. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I, I've used as an example before is if someone was writing about not the troubles in Northern Ireland, because there are two sides to that, it becomes very difficult to present the information in a way that is not going to be read as coming down on one side or the other. Or, and if you try to be balanced, then maybe both sides will go, oh, well, you gave the other side too much credit. But if you took those, those aspects, 
the aspects of what happened during the Troubles and you place it in a fantasy world and you strip out the things that identified as Northern Ireland and you get to the, the various incidents, but you dress them up, you disguise them in, in fantasy terms. It can allow for that moving back from an established position and reconsidering things without your, your knee-jerk reaction. Which I think is touching on even um, a theme of the series and, and definitely a theme in this book when it's talking about um, Diker and Fisher and kind of history and story and how we are mediating reality into meaning. And I think... Um, it, I think it's, I don't know, I was trying to use that transition. I feel like that was that was right along that Milneux, um, which I think is a theme in this book specifically about the chain of dogs. But also, I would be curious about how you feel about this. Something I've been thinking about is how the series is interrogating, obviously, these structures we interpret, create meaning, interpret reality with, and it, interrogating the fantasy genre as one of these structures and the type of epic fantasy book that Erickson is in dialogue with well I, you know that's that's obviously encompassing a, a number of different points so the first yeah, I, I threw a lot of the, the first is uh, what is history and we go oh you know history is what happened and you go well okay tell me what happened and you recount you recount that from a point of view um you know if you're talking about how alexander the great expanded his empire well, that's taking the point of view of Alexander the Great. You're not talking about it from the point of view of the lands that he conquered and pillaged. If you talk about the invasion of Alexander the Great, you're taking the other side, but you're still focused on Alexander. There, there are different ways of conceiving of the same historical event. So how we understand history is very very much narrativized, which is something that um, Erickson obviously plays with in the Malazan Book of the Fallen. If this is the recounting of events, What's the perspective? Why why are there uh, gaps or uh, attenuations of the timeline? And you go, well, because history is done that way. That's how we remember things. And it's only very recently that we sort of do everything by date. But even when we try to talk about those facets of history, and we go, this is what happened then, that's usually told from a particular perspective. And it's one of the reasons why we see multiple times in the Malazan Book of the Fallen, time and time again, you get points of view from both sides of any given conflict. And it's trying to show it from multiple angles. We have events that occur, and then very similar events occur again in slightly different circumstances, told a slightly different way with a slightly different outcome. Because um, when we see an event in a book, we go, oh, the, you know, the story, they should have done this, that would have been better. And we see that, um, say, with what happens to Saren Pedak. Oh, uh, they should have just healed her. And you go, well, okay, so if we have magical healing. So lo and behold, that's what happens to uh, Jonathan, basically in the next, uh, not the next book, the book after that. But she just gets magical healing and everyone goes, oh, well, that's just, that's minimized her experience. And you go, well, which is it? Do you want someone to be magically healed or don't you? And the thing is, by showing us both, Erickson doesn't say one is better than the other. He's trying to show us that our knee-jerk reaction to how something is done, where we go, oh, it'd be so much better if it was just done the other way, because the grass is always greener on the other side. We always like to think that we can think of a better response. When we see it done the other way, we go, oh, and we have a problem with that. And the thing is, these the Malazan Book of the Fallen, while it is these 10 volumes, and the last two are basically one giant narrative, it is a a significant meta-narrative. 
and each time it's trying to explore these different aspects of the world, show us a recurring themes, history repeating, the same patterns occurring, the same abuses of power, but showing them in different ways, showing how the abuse of power happens in a slightly different way. And that's why people go, oh, well, it's not the same, it's slightly different. But we see it time and time again, and we see it from different perspectives that allow us to analyze it in different ways. So history, as we understand it, is a giant narrative that we have created, or someone else has created and we've memorized. And that is part of what Erickson is exploring, that what we think of as history is not as solid and not as objective and not as factual as we tend to think. And he plays with that uh, historicity in the Malazan Book of the Fallen. He plays with multiple perspectives. He plays with um, the perception of events shaping events. And in all of this, the focus on the people on the ground the people who are actually doing these things, and sometimes doing things because they don't understand why. We, they don't understand their place in the grand scheme of things. And when we think of these narratives that we tell ourselves about the world, that, oh, it's, uh, it's all a grand plan that this person has executed, quite often the people on the ground don't know that. They're not privy to that. They don't have that omniscient perspective. And so even the choice of these very limited subjective points of view of characters who are doing their best in any given circumstance, that is reflective of an aspect of things going on in our world. I'm sorry, I forgot the start of your question. You're good. Um, no, I mean, I, I, I think, um, I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if there's an instance I'm forgetting, but usually there is almost always a cutaway to whatever side of the thing that, it, uh, if there's an encounter between two sides, so to speak. And actually, a common way it's done in the series is, you know, it's like we're in the assassin's point of view. They're stalking up behind on someone. And then we cut to the person who's going to kill the assassin. You know, this is a this is a common way Erickson approaches getting at this revealing the other side of the encounter. And you're talking about playing with historicity and constructing the narrative of history, which is obviously made very explicit with the corrupt stuff in this book. Um, I wonder what you would, how you would, what would you, what, I wonder what your thought would be on the, the kind of contrast between the way Krupp is constructing this narrative and the way, you know, I guess the whole Malazan Book of the Fallen is being constructed as well. Well, Krupp's, Krupp as a choice of narrator is in a lot of ways consoling. And when you think of the, the major theme of, the major theme of grief that runs through, Krupp loves Darugistan. One of the defining characteristics of Krupp that we see even in Gardens of the Moon is his love, his love of life, his, mm. his love of food, his love of his friends. Krupp is exuberant and over the top and vivacious and has a razor sharp intellect. But Krupp loves life and he is the heart and soul of Darugistan. And so when you're trying to investigate what grief is, What's that line? There's no greater anguish than a breath that begins in love and ends in grief. Yeah. Loss only occurs when you care for something. And so Krupp is the perfect narrator to investigate those dual aspects, the love of something. Love in all of its broken, damaged, imperfect forms and what that loss then entails. And in a lot of respects, Krupp is very good then at softening the blow of the tragedies, because this book is tragic. 
it is full of tragedy. It is full of loss. And if it had been told in a more serious style, if it had been told with that darker edge or a, um, a darker tone and had been very straight with how the narrative uh, was relayed, I think it would have been unbearably dark that the grief in it would have been overpowering without Krupp's narration there to soften it, to lighten it, to give focus on those moments of joy and love that is necessary for, for grief to happen, that it is part and parcel of life. When we contrast that with what Kamensod is doing as the narrator of the Book of the Fallen, Kamensod is on a journey in the series. But remember, the Book of the Fallen is being constructed afterwards. Sure. And he is looking back on the salient points of what happened to him. And he is, in certain respects, unflinching about what he did. He admits his mistakes. He admits that his eyes were opened to a different way of looking at the world. His eyes were opened to the compassion that was offered to him. And he traces out that journey. So if you start basically at the crippled God and work backwards, you can see how he constructed the important aspects of the Malazan Book of the Fallen. Because it's his revelation at the end that these people were sacrificing their lives to free him, to fight for him and free him, despite everything that he had done. And so we trace backwards and we see that so many of the events of the Malazan Book of the Fallen that are recounted, that we sometimes go, oh, that was just a side quest. Oh, it was a a side narrative. Oh, this was just fluff. Oh, Erickson was just filling in page count and he was being paid by the word. And all of those sort of ridiculous, uh, facetious remarks about it. You trace back a lot of those events and realize that these are core aspects of the very thing that Kamensod is trying to articulate, the lessons that he had to learn over the course of this series. And that's why he focuses in on certain things, why he shows certain friendships, certain love, and he shows their brokenness. He's not flinching away from that. He's not flinching away from pain or brokenness or flaws. And he wants everyone to understand that. So if we understand that as his sort of narrative position, then we can understand how Erickson, as author, sort of created this entire thing to kind of illustrate that and is, is trying to do it in slightly different ways in every book to make each book a sort of unique example that has key themes and key threads at its center that build with this overarching narrative. Yeah, we spoke in our last discussion about sometimes the difficulties of running a show where you're responding kind of piecemeal to parts of a book or something like this. And I think you're touching on something that has been, you know, a lot of the times I just say nothing and that's my entire role. But I think you're touching on something I struggle with, which is that, I mean, it's like we joke about, like we just, we're saying compassion a lot of the time, almost like it's a word that has no meaning, but it's like, obviously it's being brought up in like an obtuse or I don't know, not obtuse, but um, indirect way to refer to this idea and the idea that the series ends on, which you're touching at here, which retroactively colors a lot of what you read in the series. So a lot of the times I feel like I'm having a very different experience reading some of this stuff and knowing 
maybe why why people are being focused on a certain way or why the flaws are being focused on or why these people who are you know doing bad acts are being focused on and it's it's difficult sometimes to not express that because obviously as you're touching on it's so very tied into the ending of the series which i think is key to understanding what the whole thing is about anyway you know well, it, it's one of the ways of understanding it. I mean, each book, sure. each book, even without understanding that Kamensod is the overarching narrator, each book, it is you can identify key aspects. So think, for instance, of uh, Dasim's fight with Anamander Rick. What's the name of Dasim's sword? Reef, I believe. Vengeance. He chose uh... vengeance. But the other name is grief. It begins as vengeance and ends in grief. That's the, the literal transition of that sword. He strikes Anamander Rake down with vengeance, and the very next moment, it is grief, mm. right? So you have a very literal example of that. Then what does Cutter do when his friend is murdered, cut down in the duel? He exacts vengeance, cold-hearted vengeance. He doesn't mourn his friend. He doesn't respect his friend. He doesn't stay with his other friends and help them mourn. He exacts vengeance. And what is he left with at the end of it? He's It's empty and it's hollow. We see um, Chalice's story. Chalice, who at the very beginning made, uh, she, was, she was a prize to be won by Crocus. And that's, you know, she's called Chalice. She is this perfect holy vessel something that he wants to steal. And when he tries to kidnap her and she's like, who the hell are you? It's That's when he suddenly realizes that she's not an object, she's a person. And we see that he's the idiot and he has completely overlooked her personhood. Sure. And, you know, it's, it's astounding the number of fantasy novels that we read where we where the hero would do that and the woman would go, oh, it's you, oh, and swoon. And oh, we, yeah. never pick, we never pick up on the, or we rarely pick up on the fact that she is just there as an appendage, a thing for the hero. And that is uh, directly um, argued against by Erickson in Gardens of the Moon. But then he picks up on her story and she has made the choice. She has chosen her social position and she is locked in this cage. She's this woman who through her choice is locked away from everything. So Mother Dark, being a female character who through choice is locked away on her own away from everything. And then we have a sacrifice and a death, in this case, Rick being killed and uh, Mother Dark is freed. Mother Dark comes back to her children. They they re-enter, uh, they can re-enter darkness. They can join with their God again. But when Cutter or Crocus frees Chalice from her golden prison, she kills herself. That these are all different ways of approaching similar things and, and looking at, I know I get made fun of for saying this, but points of connection. That there are points of connection between all. So even without knowing anything about Kamensot, looking at the aspects of this novel, the things that happen in this novel, Anamander Rake, the father figure, who sacrifices himself and then is replaced by uh, Namander. People go, why is Namander's story there? He's such a bad leader. He's so boring. He's terrible. Oh, he's always whining. Like He doesn't exhibit any leadership qualities. The thing is, that's because we're behind his eyes. 
we're in his head. We get the indecision there. But what do the people outside of him see? The people outside of him, the people looking at him, see Anamander Rake. What did people see of Rake in Gardens of the Moon? Uh, the dark lord of Moonspawn, the chaos mean, Anamander Rake. That's what they saw. They, they looked at this strange, otherworldly being who was inscrutable. And now, when we get Namander's story, if we were in that party looking at him, we would see that same thing. He is inscrutable. He does the difficult thing. He makes the difficult choices and he weighs things up. But he internally is plagued by doubts. And we get a fraction of that insight into Anamander Rakenness and see that he has the same doubts. But he cannot present those doubts to his people. He must be a leader for them. He must carry their burden. And Namander then is our way of gaining insight into Anamander. That by seeing the interiority of Nimander, we are seeing inside Anamander. They are the same journey, but at different points. And that is within Told the Hounds. You don't need to know about the overarching narration. And extending that element of understanding to these things, trying to see how these things relate to each other. It's not about being told what is happening. What is happening is an illustration of things that you are going to intuit, things that you're going to understand. So when you have the the treatment of loss, how do different people react to um, Morelio's death? And you have Krupp, but you have Mies and Rinalta, and you have, you have those people in the Phoenix Inn. And they all react differently, but what they find is they come together, with the exception, obviously, of, of Crocus. But when Anamander dies, what happens? Well, Caledon Brood appears. Caledon Brood, who has known Anamander, well, only from this book or from the Lazen book of the phone, we know they've known each other for quite some time, a number of centuries. Sure. They have a deep friendship. And he leaves behind, he doesn't deal with Dragnapur as the immediate thing that he has to deal with. He builds a resting place for his friend. That's the first thing he does. And surrounding them, Surrounding him as he is building this are all of these people mourning the death of the father of this race because he has been their father, their leader. And he is literally Namander's uh, father, but he is the father figure for this race and he is dead and he is being buried. And so there's that ritualized treatment of loss and grief. The Phoenix in crowd is more the wake of celebrating someone's life. We have the tragedy of Chalice's end. We have the just comeuppance of, uh, is it, oh, what's his name, Gorlis Viticus? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, the just, uh, just desserts that he gets. But that, how he dies, how, how Crocus kills him, is an exact mirror of the duel, basically, from Gardens of the Moon. He does exactly the same thing. He assassinates someone in a duel. Sure. That we're seeing these echoes play out over time. But what joy did that bring to an assassin's life? It didn't. And so we, we get all of these different, different ways of expressing the same note and understanding the narrative perspective, Under, even understanding that while Erickson was writing this, um, he was dealing with the loss of his father. You can understand why that grief is permeating these things, why it's in some respects, he was working out that particular theme. He was mining aspects of it. 
um, to try and deal with it. And that ties back into the perspective then, because you don't want to become maudlin. You don't want to become obsessed about it. Because when you chew over grief, when you let it consume you, you end up like Kataspala in Dragnapur, who has become so obsessed with his sister's death that that is the one thing that defines him. It gnaws on him. It is, it is every center of his being. It is the most destructive form of grief and loss. And so when I see all of these different elements and I read this book that is helping express and explore different ways of approaching grief, um, I, I, you know, that's why sometimes I find it confusing when people go, oh, I just didn't get it or it was really boring. And like this book is incredibly powerful to me because, you know, it, it has helped me deal with aspects of loss in my life. It has helped me come to terms with some of these things that I can see these uh, aspects of loss and grief and death represented in the text. And I can see myself in the different reactions to it. Um, and that is a like a very deeply personal connection to it, which helps me experience those feelings. In some respects, it's very cathartic. And so when we talk about, and I think sometimes we say it flippantly and sometimes we say it uh, facetiously about, you know, it's all about compassion. It's all about empathy. That's what this series is about. And we don't really understand that that's about understanding these feelings. It's about processing these feelings. And, you know, on top of all of this, obviously, we still get the really cool fights. We sure. still get the, the, the big action sequences. We still get the exciting story. We still get the really cool characters doing cool things. Like, you still have those things. But one of the reasons when, when Philip and I discuss this, like we focus so heavily on themes is because that's what's really resonating with us. Because everyone is going to interpret or everyone's going to enjoy different bits of it in their own way. But the, the themes, I think, are more universal. Yeah, no. Um, I think there's a lot of connections to be made in individual books, obviously. And when I speak about wanting to make this connection to the Cayman Sod stuff, um, obviously that's only one part of it. I don't think everything links to that. And I think that's one of the rich things is that each one of these books have some maybe themes that are more salient in an individual book, but then there are also ones that obviously bleed throughout. Um, and you're talking about speaking on these themes and I have found, I usually call this my favorite one of the books. And I think it's because it's themes have resonated very deeply with me and has really impacted me, but in a weird way, sometimes when it's, it, it impacts you that much, it ends up feeling very personal in a sense where I feel like I'm not, I don't even know if I'm really trying to talk about it in a sense, you know, because it comes from a difficult place in my life or difficult memories or difficult experiences. But that's obviously um, what draws us to these books or what, you know, fa forges a deep connection between you and a type of book, uh, between you and these books or other books, you know. Um, so to touch on um, one of the many thing, one of the many connections you are making within the book, um, you know, you talk about how Krupp is kind of the heart of Darugistan and is the center of this love, which I always felt was a real contrast between the black coral stuff um, and kind of the Namander stuff, the Andy stuff, where. This, um, you mentioned Kataspala. I also feel this is an area ca characterized by a type of melancholy, by a type of 
forlornness, a hopelessness in a sense. And if the book has a lot of people who are kind of pushing through or trying to work out how to move through something, move through whatever it is they're facing, um, I feel that the Andy stuff, you know, there are people moving through, but you are really seeing people a lot of the times I feel you see the pain of that in a sense. I, I feel a lot of pain there. Of course, there's pain in Jerusalem as well. And specifically with the Namander stuff, I, I've ribbed him for the leadership stuff on this show, but I actually have found that definitely when I read the book the first time, this was the, that was the stuff I was least interested in, which I think is a common experience. Um, but I think, interestingly, after I have finished it, I have ended up feeling like it is one of the parts I am most interested in. Um, and although it, I, I do somewhat feel some disconnect between it sometimes, it, I think he is a very compelling character, although I don't know if I could articulate why I feel drawn to him. Well, he's neatly contrasted with Clip. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's one of the first things. Like Clip is so sure in what he is doing. He is absolutely sure and rigid. He knows what is happening. Uh, this is what he's going to do. And nothing will change his mind. And he wants to be the leader. And of course, that's, that's a type of leader that we're seeing. The, the one that goes, I know. And no matter what evidence you present, they go, the evidence doesn't matter. I've made up my mind. And he's contrasted with, with Namander, who we see from the inside who is aware as soon as he acts, as soon as he makes that decision, you can't take it back. There are repercussions. Clip, yep. we get the sense that he, he hasn't thought more than what's immediately in front of him. He doesn't think about repercussions. Whereas Namander is potentially almost paralyzed by as soon as I make this decision. And we can all understand that. We can all go, if I do this, if I pull... If I make this decision, if I act on it, there's no going back. And those are big decisions and we weigh them up. But then once he makes up his mind, once he decides to act, he is decisive. And so it's a, it's a different view of leadership that we see contrasted very neatly between the two of them. But when, we talk, when you were talking there about that sort of literalization of people with a struggle, you have Clip is the angry child looking to depose the father. Sure. You have Namander is the abandoned child looking for a father. You have Harlow, the unloved child looking for a mother. The focus on children in this is actually quite, I, I would think quite obvious and quite stark that these are all different parts of the relationship we have with our children. Whereas in Deadhouse Gates, a lot of what we saw was about motherhood. This time around, we're focusing on the children. And even though the reference to Carse's daughters arriving, that the, there are ramifications and repercussions to all acts in the series, that aspects from 300,000 years ago, when we saw that uh, the glimpse of the Jagat War that obviously had a, a big impact uh, creating the, the uh, Panian Domen, hmm. and the repercussions of those things through time, we see how things from the past will still impact us today. And sometimes it's as stark as what happened to Stani and her child then, Harlow, that she can't get past the trauma that created him. But at the same time, Harlow is, and is just as innocent 
a victim because he's going like, mother, like, I'm here. Why don't you love me? And it is heartbreaking because we understand the trauma that Stani has undergone and we can understand her position. At the same time, our heart breaks for Harlow. And then we see Snell, the flip side of that, the evil little malicious sociopathic child. Because, you know, let's face it, young enough children are basically sociopaths. (laughs) I think we've all encountered those children when we've been out and about. Yeah. Um, And it's never... One of the the things that I love about this series is it, it is very rarely didactic. It's very rarely telling you, you must believe. It is showing you, and yeah, Erickson loads the dice. He he's uh, messed with the deck in what he is showing you. He's he's tipped the scales slightly, but he does show you. He shows you multiple angles, and asks you to think about it. And when we see those various things, we realize that so often um, we judge far too quickly, and we judge in simple binaries. Is Stunny right or is Harlow right? You go, well, it's it's not an either or. That things are much more complex than that in human interactions. The human beings are more complex than that. Human beings are not a single individual incident. But a single individual incident can have massive repercussions on the life of a human being. It's understanding that complexity. And like even going back to, to Chalice. She thought she had chosen this life and ends up trapped. And she tries to recapture that innocence from her past, which is obviously you know, the, the globe, the snow globe that she holds. Sure. That is very obviously a symbol for her lost innocence. And when she pursues Cutter, when she pursues Crocus, we can see that Crocus is... In some ways, he's trying to recapture who he used to be as well because he doesn't like who he is now. But you cannot go back. But what we find with Crocus at the end is he accepts that he cannot run from his past. He accepts that he cannot change those aspects. He has to live with it. And once he's accepted that, he has the ability to move on. But what we see in Chalice is she can't accept it. She can't move on. It is too difficult. And she makes that decision to end her own life. And I think hopefully very few people listening to this will understand that level of despair. But I think a fair number of us will have encountered people who have endured that level of despair. And understanding that it's not, people sometimes refer to this as taking the cards way out. And sometimes it's you cannot bear anymore. And I think that's what Erickson was trying, at least trying in part to articulate. She wasn't a card. This wasn't a card's way out. She wasn't giving up. She just, she couldn't fight anymore. She was tired. And that is, it's very difficult to communicate to people who haven't experienced it or who aren't close to someone who has experienced it. And understanding then that aspect when we see Hood walk through Darugistan and these people die in weird and wonderful ways, people at sure. all times of their, at all times and all points in their lives. And some of them are ludicrous. Some of them are ridiculous. And some of them are tragic. And you go, because that's what death is. Death is 
comes for us at the most inconvenient of times and is going on all around us all the time. Like the, was it W.H. Auden that had that poem, uh, Stop All the Clocks, which is obviously like, when you have suffered loss personally, why, why does the world carry on going as if nothing has changed? Something has radically changed. Look at the loss that I have suffered. When Hood walks through that city and these people are dying, the city carries on, life carries on, and it's, it's recognizing this complexity in life. And Auden obviously did that poem very much specifically about that point. Erickson is doing it in a different way through this novel. Yeah, I think when you talk about Erickson avoiding uh, dyads um, or that type of binary thing, I think it gets back to what we were talking about near the beginning of the conversation with having these points of view across all of these different conflicts or showing these different points and trying to expose the potential complexity of these narratives. But I do agree. I do think Erickson stacks the deck and this gets, um, you know, kind of touches on what we were talking about before. I mean, I think he stacks the deck in the way that there are things that will be, you know, connected to the text or things that won't be connected to the text. And also when you're revealing complexities of the issues, as always, you know, what complexities get shine, sh have the light shown on it are going to be different for each person, you know? Um, so I think it's, um, I think it's interesting to try and capture the complexity of it all because, you know, obviously it's going to be a very different thing per person in a sense. Um, and that's why it's interesting when, when people read a text, they, the sort of the trite expression for it is the text actually reads you. A lot of the times, the things that we pick out of a text are actually reflective of aspects of our own personality, aspects of our own things that we are worried about or we are obsessed about or that we have guilt about or um, that there's something in our brain is not necessarily fixated, but preoccupied with these things. And so these are the things that we find important in the text. And so in some ways, it can be very interesting when you have a group of people reading a text and one of them goes, oh, this thing's this. And you can kind of look at them and go, why did you think that? Why have you picked up on that? Because that says an awful lot about you as a person, that that's your interpretation of what's on this page. And, you know, we, we, we always try to stay steer clear of armchair psychology, but leave that to the professionals. But as a reader, it is something that I constantly have to remind myself of that sometimes I am projecting meaning into a text that isn't there. I'm reading something that isn't there because it is something that is personal to my experience or personal to my background. Um, a story that I've, I've, I've told a couple of times to explain this is I, I read a book by Joe Abercrombie and in it there's a uh, an officer figure who is clearly modeled on um, the upper class English soldier. And he is obnoxious and he is arrogant. And I loathed reading him on the page. It made the book miserable for me. And when I heard Abercrombie read this aloud, he was sending the character up. It was an exaggeration of that. It was meant to be, we were meant to read it, him as a figure of fun. That yes, he was all of these things, but it wasn't serious. We were meant to laugh at him because he was so pompous, he was so arrogant. 
And a lot of that had to do with obviously where I grew up and the relationship that my community had with English soldiers. That growing up where I did and when I did created a very specific psychological reaction to those sorts of things. And I experienced it when I went to university in England, that I was treated in a certain way because of where I was from. And so when I read that, I was mapping on that experience onto that character when it was never what the author intended. And actually, when I paid attention to the text, when I paid attention to, when I went back and re-looked at it, I went, how could I have not seen that? I'm an idiot. It was like the uh, a Damascenian moment of the, the scales falling from my eyes because I suddenly realized what the character was and why these things made sense and how you were meant to read it. And that made everything flow together much better within the narrative. And that doesn't mean that when I first read it, that I'm lying about the experience I had and that that wasn't my experience. No, that was clearly yeah. the experience I had. But I'd completely misread that character. I had read him as a very serious character when he wasn't. And as soon as I read him as the figure of fun, as the character we're meant to point at and laugh, that character fitted into the narrative pattern. And the, the narrative was smoother then, and it made sense. And suddenly the peaks and troughs were in the right place. The tensions were in the right place. The alleviation of tension was in the right place. Whereas before, all of that had felt disjointed because I was reading that character in a different way. Oh, 100, 100% agree with everything you said. Um, I mean, I think it's one of the, you know, I guess one of the, so we come here on the show and we offer some random thought we had about when we were reading the book. And one of the, you know, they range in how, they range in quality, let's say that. And um the, one of the great things is we we have uh, people have listened to the show, which I'm so thankful for. And all the time we get people right in offering, hey, think about this reading. Or if you look at this passage, maybe you think about it differently. And, you know, it, it really depends on different stuff. And I think being exposed to a lot of different ways people are experiencing the book or I think more plausible arguments around what what an interpretation could mean has always been one of the best parts about making this show and i think um because i think it can be difficult sometimes to for me at least to enter some sort of realm of you know i don't know whatever uh where i'm leaving myself totally at the door because of course you know there are these things i'm interested in and then whether academic subjects or whatever or there are these you know, personal insecurities or thoughts about my life, you know, that I am always aware that I'm bringing to the text, you know, and, you know, I can try at my hardest not to bring them in or try and cipher how much of this is like a grounded thought based in responding directly to the text or how much is this just something I'm more something that has to do with me. And, um, you know, to touch on one of these things, I mentioned at the top of the show, I think some hangups around the fantasy genre, so to speak. And I think um, definitely while I've made the show, I think there was a few years of my life where I tried to purposefully move away from the genre and towards some gesture of 
I don't know, whateverness. I, you know, I regret it, but it is what it is. Pete, you know, let me let me just stop you there for a second. Sometimes you need to lean into the nerddom. You need to let that freak flag fly high. That you, if you like fantasy, lean into it, revel in it, cover your your bed in books. Although actually, don't do that. The paper cuts could be very nasty. But celebration and engagement with the things that we love, and engaging other people, and talking about things passionately, and genuinely trying to engage with them. That that to me is is one of the best aspects of life. I love the fantasy genre. I love science fiction as well. Um, I specialized in fantasy for my PhD and it's my, my first major passion. But I read other forms of literature because my, to be perfectly honest, my real passion is narrative. But to go back to something you said, I, I believe you're a teacher? Yeah. Right. So without you confirming, because I wouldn't want to get you into any trouble, but... I am sure when you are teaching, there are certain students uh, that you have that you like more than other students. But when you walk in that door, you leave that behind because you take your job seriously and you want to ensure that every single one of your students, be they little shits or be they awesome, you want to ensure that they get the best education possible. So you have that facility to leave a huge amount of personal baggage and, and stuff at the door in order to do your job. And what you'll find, I think, with a lot of um, academics, critics, uh, people who are involved in creative enterprises, they have that, they have trained to have that same ability. It's not a natural ability that you just, oh, I, I qualified as a teacher. Now I have this ability. You had to work at it. Oh, 100%. What we tend to forget is if we don't practice that, it is difficult to do. And if we can't do it, we sometimes make the assumption that other people can't do it. Because, well, if I can't do it, then no one can. And yet, you know that you can do it when it comes to your job. So if you think about when I'm editing, I'm not editing a book and going, oh, I wish they would just do this thing. That would be, oh, I, uh, that would be so much. Because then I'd be trying to get them to write the book that I want. Yeah, which is not the point of criticism. Which is not the point you of, want, you know. Not the point of editing. So there is, every human being has the facility to learn how to do this. No one is born being able to do this. At least yeah. I, no, no one I know has been born with the ability to do this. But because so many of us, we, we watch films, we watch TV, we read books, we get used to being in the position of consumer. And one of the, th and you can learn to do this on your own, but one of the things that doing degrees in the subject helps with, it's a shortcut to understanding this. It's a shortcut to develop these skills and techniques. Because if you think teaching, the teaching of English literature is a relatively new subject. It's only the last just over a hundred years that it was taught at universities. Before then, people weren't taught English literature. They were taught the classics, but English literature is, is a relatively new subject. And creative writing is an even newer subject that authors learned were self-taught or they find someone to show them a couple of tips and tricks. But the way that authors learned was they read widely and they started picking apart different techniques, different skills that uh, other authors were using. And so creative writing courses quite often are a shortcut. It's not that you have to go on a creative writing course. 
it just makes it easier because you are getting someone who already knows the stuff, who is teaching you the stuff, is giving you examples that illustrate the, the thing. And it helps you cut out reading a whole lot of stuff and guessing at it and then reading more stuff to test your hypothesis and more stuff to test it again and developing that way. You still have to do a lot of that as an author, but creative writing courses help. And discussions between friends, we've all had that moment when we have been talking about a book and with with our friends and they come up with some wild thing and you, you argue about it good naturedly. You discuss it, you discuss these different opinions. And at the end of it, generally, you both walk away knowing the book better because sometimes they test your argument and your argument holds up. Sometimes they test your argument and your argument just falls apart. And that is the benefit. Things like your podcast, things like the discussions on YouTube, things like the discussions on Reddit. No one needs a PhD or an MA or a BA in literature to engage in these things. You just need a genuine passion and a genuine attempt to try and understand. But there's a whole lot of other discussions which are, I just want to talk about the things that I enjoy. And that is absolutely fine as well. But there has to be a recognition that when you're talking about the thing, well, I just want to talk about it in terms of what I enjoy. You go, that's fine. But you don't pretend that's the same as trying to understand it. So you don't try to make those same points. And when you're trying to understand it, you can refer to things that you enjoy, but that's not the main thrust of what you're talking about. You're, you're going for understanding and appreciation, which is slightly different. But all of these things, all of these different voices add to the conversation. And it's important to have all of these different voices. And that's why, you know, the, the aspect of instead of insisting that the authorial intent is the be all and end all with a book's meaning. I'm glad that we don't have that position anymore. And I'm glad that we have brought in as very important, the position of reader, but the position of reader has to be balanced against the author's intent, because those are both important voices in the encoding and decoding of the information. And that's, it's all about it striving for this balance, this understanding. Yeah, no, I think it's um, one of the one of the things the internet has done has opened up the the realm to have these types of discussions. Because I agree. I mean, I, I really loved a lot of what you said there, and I agree. I think in my mind, the more people in the conversation, the better, and the more people who are willing to, you know speak about what they're passionate about, to try and make meaning of a text, to try and speak about what they appreciate about the text. You know, this is all this is all good. To me, this is more people engaging with art, engaging with, you know, making meaning in their lives and, and you know, hope maybe being in a community. So I agree. Of course, it does have this effect where, you know, as we've talked about, these readings will range in in quality in a sense. But I think that, you know, just a part of what's baked into the democratization of that type of dialogue outside of strict academic settings, which, of course, impose their own barriers. So that's why I've always welcomed people writing in about the show. And I, as I mentioned, I love I love reading about other people's opinions because they're almost always more interesting than mine, you know? <laughs> Um, I already know how I feel. It's pretty boring most of the time. So 
I, I fully agree with with almost everything you said there. I just, um, you know, I think sometimes I know from my experience, it can be easier said than done sometimes, or that I'll make some comment or write something online and be like, oh, was that more Peter or was that more, you know, realm of analysis or whatever this type of step back thing is. But I think, you know, that's just going to be a human foible. And, you know, it's something it's like you mentioned with the being professional type thing. It's kind of a muscle that is developed over time in a sense. Yeah. And you also suffer from the thing that, you know, as a podcast, you are publishing your your arguments, your views, your your interpretation of something. And you're publishing that. And then you have listeners who are listening and interpreting sure. what you have said. And you go, no, that's not what I said. And they go, no, but that's what, no, you said this and that's what that means. And you have, you can, you can see in real time. Oh my God. We, it the happens, whole argument. Happens of, all the time. I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm, listen, in my opinion, Steve has been incredibly gracious with all this stuff. I'm sure it must be incredibly difficult to put your life to work out there and then have a bunch of people be saying all this stuff about it, you know? Um, so I will say authors are almost all of the authors I've ever met are incredibly thick skinned, uh, when it comes to uh, actual criticism of their work, that if someone is willing to sit down and actually engage with their work, even if they hate it, but they put together like a thorough analysis of it, they go, you know, I got to respect that. And authors are very thick-skinned. Anyone who's gone through a writing program has had their work torn to pieces in front of their very eyes by the other students in the room. That is one of the things that they do. Authors are great about that, uh, in my experience at least. But it can be, it's something I've had to, to come to terms with because, you know, I started a YouTube channel and suddenly people were going, "Mm," and I'm going, that's not what I said. In fact, I can give you the timestamps where I categorically said the opposite. And I had to realize that some people argue in bad faith. And oh. that, that was something I, I, I'm still bad at. But also there were some people who just genuinely misunderstood. Or sometimes I went, I thought I was clear. I've played it back and went, no, I'm an idiot. I was actually unclear on that point. It was really clear in my head. But the way I articulated it was actually unclear. It was too ambiguous. I should have made those additional points. And, you know, I've, I'm grow- trying to be a bit better about that. But it is difficult because when we think something is obvious, and I got into trouble about this, about a uh, spoiler for Gardens of the Moon, because I thought it was very obvious in Gardens of the Moon that Kelimved and Dancer are Shadow Throne and Cotillion. Sure. Like, to me, it is really obvious in Gardens of the Moon from the first time I read it. And I, you know, mentioned this and someone said, that's a spoiler from Dead House Gates. I mean, no, it isn't. I went, but it's in Dead House Gates that they say that. I went, but all the evidence is in Gardens of the Moon. But to me, how was I meant to know that that was a spoiler? I thought it was really obvious. But it was only when I went back to think about it and I went, well, okay, it might have been obvious to me, but it wasn't obvious to someone else. And being aware of how some people treat spoilers, which, you know, personally, I... Uh, some people are really intense about it. And one of the images... Uh, the cover of Dead House Gates on the Subterranean Press version is of yeah. Coltane's Crucifixion. Went, that's a spoiler. And you go, it's not a spoiler until you've read the book. Yeah, That's just some bloke getting crucified. And there's two scenes where you see people getting crucified in Dead House Gates. But because if you've read the book, you understand the context, you then go, oh, 
that's that scene. But you only know that when you get to that scene. For anyone else, it's just some bloke being crucified. And when you look at the covers of books, the number of times that they are almost irrelevant to anything going on in the actual novel, the only way a new reader is going to know that that's a spoiler is if you tell them it's a spoiler. Oh, 100%. I think a lot of the times the spoiler... I I would say it's rare that spoilers can deflate the entire meaning of a story. And I would argue if it was a good story, the meaning can be created regardless. Um, but I will see so, there are times you, it's nice to know less about a story. So, I, uh, you know, I get it. I'm, I'm, I don't love spoilers, but I don't. It, there has become an intense culture. An intense culture has developed around it. Despite that, there's actually been academic research on this. And the research paper showed with a I think they used a mystery novel and it was a whodunit or a mystery story, a whodunit. And they gave one group uh, a synopsis of exactly what happened and like who the killer was before they read it. Another group, um, they gave the story blind. And then another group, uh, so they had a a couple of different ways of, of doing it, of testing it, and the level of spoiler that they were given. And they found that the group that had the book spoiled, that knew everything that was going to happen, enjoyed the book more. Enjoyed the story more. Interesting. And they, they ran this. They ran it as an experiment. It seems counterintuitive. But if you think on your, when you reread the book, you know what is going to happen. And it's, so instead of constantly, as we were talking about, when you're doing it chapter by chapter, trying to work out what's going to happen, you're not worried about that. You know where it's going. What you're focused on is the now. You're focused on what's happening on the page as it happens. Yeah, it, it's funny you say this. I actually feel my reread of these books has been more enjoyable than the first read through. And I don't think it's because I'm like, oh, well, we're all going to Colance. You know, it's like, I, I don't think I'm like tuned into it's because I know where the story is going. I think a lot of the time it's because, for example, when I first read Toll the Hounds, I, di- I didn't hate the book, but I didn't love it. I was just kind of like, man, really slow first 800 pages was basically my impression, which I think experience other people have. But I think coming back the second time, this was the third time I read the book on the show, you know, the ability to just relax into a story and to kind of know the vibe and to know the beats and to kind of know what's happening, I think allows me to en- enjoy the book a lot more. And I think that's going to be the case with a lot of other stories. It, it's almost deflating a bit of the tension and allowing you to sit in some of the spaces or pauses or kind of narrative breaks in the story. Yeah, and and that's what I mean. That because there isn't the pressure on you to find out what's happening, you're sure. relaxing into what is there. You're just no, I'm going to read it. Like I, I basically know roughly what's going to happen, and you're not worried about it. You're not constantly trying to project forward. What you're doing is you're focusing on what is happening, and you're reading that, and you're engaged with that, and you don't have one eye on the future. You don't have part of your brain scrambling around to try and. Um, well, is this going to be important? Is that going to be important? Why is he saying this? Who is that? Why are they doing it? You just go, no, I'm just going to read what's there. Because you already have, even if you don't have a, a crystal clear memory of it, you have a low level memory of it. And you know the general beats, you know generally where it's going. And so you're, you're actually just much more focused on the page in front of you. And that's that's something that is uh, passingly rare now. Uh, a lot of books... Are, are not written that way anymore because we are aware in the modern day of everyone being so time poor that a lot of books, particularly within 
the the genres that we love are written with an idea of almost being disposable fiction that you read them once sure and then you get rid of them and so it's all about deliver an exciting page turning read and you know there is definitely a place in the genre for that but there's also a place in the genre for the books that you read and reread the books that you read multiple times and each time are extracting more from them not just getting deeper and deeper into the world but as you change and age as a reader finding out that meaning shifts over time and you know this is what i was talking about when sometimes a book reads you you at 20 are not going to respond the same way that you at 30 are because you've had 10 years of experience in the interim you may have had loves and losses you might have had traumas and tragedies. Uh, you might have had successes. And all of those things will shape and change who you are. Plus, your interaction with society will change your priorities. And so when you reread, you are a different person. And so even though the text hasn't changed, you have, because you have the meaning changes, the prioritization of meaning changes, the major themes shift and you reinterpret them slightly differently each time. And that's because we as reader are so central to the decoding of the information. Oh, 100%. And I think that's why, um, I mean, the books mean something to me different now at 28 than when I read them when I was 18. And I think when I read them again when I'm 38, I'm sure they will, you know, different things will stand out to me. You know, I think unsurprisingly, I, I like, being interested in Crocus or other characters who were on some sort of identity finding journey, you know, resonated with me, but I wouldn't be surprised if it resonates less in the future. You know, um, I, I think it's natural. And I think it's one of the great things about text that they'll evolve over time. Well, wait until you get to the age where you start sort of identifying with Duiker and go, oh, yeah, <laughs> oh, my back sore. Oh, I can't Ooh, do that anymore. Uh, nice. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, Unfortunately, that is going to do it for us here today. Thank you so much for coming on the show, AP. It was a great chat. Um, I really appreciate our conversation. Well, thank you very much, Peter. It, it's been a real pleasure to to chat to you and also to, to chat to everyone else as well. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, I apologize that you know we, we kept wandering off Toll the Hound specifically. Um, um, it, it, is a book- it was a good conversation anyway, so... But it is a book that is incredibly important to me. And I find it to be incredibly powerful with those themes of loss and grief and love. And the one aspect I didn't really pick up on, if we just have two minutes here. Sure. The theme of love in it, we often overlook because of how overpowering the theme of grief and loss are. But the love in it that we see, um, Scalara and Barathol, of the broken love between Cutter and Chalice, the love of Callan and Brood for Anamander Rake, the familial love that we see with Namander's group, the love Harlow has for Stoney, the love that Stoney has for Harlow and the heartbreak in not being able to, to articulate it and, and struggling with it, the, the love between Gaz and I've forgotten Gaz's wife. Um, but throughout all of it, it's, it's not that any one of these is this is what love should be. This is a painting of the multiplicity of what love is in our world. The broken love, the damaged love, the thing that we think of as love, but it's, it's actually, it's a masquerade. It's about ownership and possession. Like we see all of those different aspects. And it's a way of 
understanding the sheer complexity and variety of what relationships are to other people and what they mean to other people. Because quite often when we read fantasy, and we alluded to this, that when you see a love story, it's this perfect, idealized, completely unnatural, unreal. The hero falls in love with the the heroine and they are soulmates and they are perfect and it builds up over time and then they fall in love and then they are together forever. It's so nice to see the complexity of real relationships actually being reflected. And I think sometimes people mistake the intent of what that was done with, that Erickson can't write romance, he can't write relationships. When I think a lot of what he is writing is not romance in the sense of narrative romance, of storybook romance, but is actually, no, this is, this is kind of what some relationships are like. And it's a glimpse into that. And we, we sometimes say that we want realism, more realism in fantasy. This is really realistic. I want it. The CGI in that film is terrible because it wasn't realistic enough that we want realism. But when confronted with realism, it can shatter our illusions when we suddenly realize that we've been holding up as real this idealized notion. And that's what we really wanted. We wanted the conciliatory, comforting, true love and romance that we find in stories. We don't want to be confronted with the complexity of imperfect people loving each other imperfectly. And people casting judgment on characters and say, oh, I liked him and then he did that and he's awful. As if, you know, that one thing is is the definition of that character now. People are more complex than that. Their relationships are more complex than that. And so I think Toll the Hounds, because so much of it is invested in these glimpses into people's lives, far more so than I think a lot of the other books, I think Toll the Hounds really shines a light on that aspect, the domestic aspect of fantasy. But that was Whoa. the... Well, no, I got, I, got, I got to build on it 100% because I think it's actually... I joke about it a lot because I find the storyline so funny. I think the Barathol starting a small business storyline is very funny in this. You use the word domestic. I almost feel like it's a slice of life sense or, you know, there's another plot line somewhere else. I forget about insurance and stuff. You know, it's like there are these very real and especially in this book, very mundane elements of life. And that's where I think Darugstan is specifically focused because I find the Black Coral stuff to be a little more abstract, a little more high fantasy. You know, I find the Darugstan stuff to be specifically in this mode of like, here's an everyday person trying to work through a very real struggle. You know, there is very... You know, I guess there are fantastical elements in that city, but to me, it is a very tangible and very emotional thing about how difficult it can be to try and move forward, you know, through something. So I think that actually those elements is why the book has really resonated with me very deeply, along with some other stuff. Well, thank you very much for for inviting me on, Peter. I'd, sorry for derailing it at the end there as we were wrapping up. <laughs> you're totally you're, you're totally good. It was an absolute treat to have you on the show. Um, we will put AP's YouTube channel in the description, of course. I'm sure you've already been there, but if not, I suggest you do. Thank you so much for coming on, on the show, AP. I hope we get the chance to speak again. Have a great night. Goodbye.